Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, your irreverent and occasionally erudite guide to the plays of William Shakespeare. In today's episode, the most boring war ever waged for the fate of France or for a woman's heart, featuring highly questionable parenting practices by the King of England. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is Episode 8, The Hundred Years Boar, in which we will be talking about Edward III. A son of Isabella of France, grandson of Philip IV of France, heir of the House of Capet. I am the lawful, God-given King of France. James, can you give us the plot summary and a little background here? What plot, Will? But yes, I certainly can. King Edward III is in his court. The English king grants a royal audience to the French nobleman Robert of Artois, who informs Edward that careful analysis of the family tree of the French royal dynasty reveals that, in fact, Edward is the rightful king of France. By some very convenient or inconvenient timing, depending on how you look at it, as soon as Robert concludes this argument, a messenger from King John of France arrives to insist that Edward do homage to John for his French possessions. Edward and his court are incensed by this scurrilous demand, and Edward announces his new plan to conquer France, reclaim his patrimony, and breakfast on croissants and Galois cigarettes in Paris. I'm reading between the lines on the croissant bit a little bit. But first, Edward must march north to repel a threat from a band of invading Scots. Edward marches to the relief of Roxburgh, being held against the northern hordes by the Countess of Salisbury. Unsurprisingly, the cowardly Scots flee at the first sight of the English and Edward turns his attention to what apparently really matters, a pathetically misconceived effort to seduce the Countess. After a frankly bizarre sequence of conversations, Edward accepts that the Countess is not going to give in to his solicitations, and he girds himself up to depart for France. The rest of the play proceeds in a mind-numbing sequence of scenes representing Edward's successes in France. He argues with the French king about whose claim is better, he wins a great victory at Cressy in a scene that also features his refusal to send troops to relieve his son, Edward the Black Prince, on the grounds that whether his son dies or is victorious, the outcome will be more glorious because unaided. Unsurprisingly, the prince wins the day, validating Edward's extremely poor approach to setting priorities. Then Edward and his son split up, with Edward going to besiege the port city of Calais while the prince continues the campaign. This allows the prince to win another great victory against the French dogs at Poitiers in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. Making this all the more sweet is that the French had arrogantly been boasting about their impending victory before the battle. The French king is captured. The prince marches to Calais, arriving just in time to find that the king has taken the city. A messenger arrives to announce that the king of the Scots has been captured as well. King, prince, and their retinue enter the city in triumph, only to realize that it'll be another several centuries before cigarettes are introduced to France. That was a delightful summary of a, dare I say, rather mediocre play. Mediocre may be too generous uh, a word, Will. This play, uh, this play has it all in the wrong sense of the word. Uh, <laughs> it's plotting proceeds. I mean, I don't know if you could call it a plot, right? In the in the sense, if if you think of a story being the traditional English class version of having a beginning, middle, and end that all tie together and that arc from beginning to end to tell a complete narrative. This play is not that. It is a series of scenes. 
So with that in mind, I think one of the problems with the plot of this play and just kind of the style of storytelling in general is that it's very sh it's very tell, don't show. You're always told to show, not tell when you're doing, uh, you know, creative projects. And this is like literally a series of narrations where, yes, there's this conflict, but you never actually really even, I think, see staged action for the most part. Everything is no, happening I think, off stage. I think that's right. I think even the, even the battle scenes, you know, where we saw actual battle scenes in the Henry VI plays, right where he represents people coming on stage and fighting in this all those things appear you know are reported right it's you know in that scene where edward is talking about not sending aid to his son at cressy you know that's it's reported to him off screen that the prince is you know is in need of aid it's not like he's out looking at the battlefield and sees oh no the prince is, is the set and this is fascinating right because in that scene edward it basically says if he dies he dies like you know more to the glory of england and then at the end right when he is quite fearful because there's a whole prophecy that is more complicated than really needs to be gotten into but the king thinks there's a good chance they'll lose and he thinks his son is probably lost in the final battle at poitiers uh, and then he shows up triumphant at the end and during the period though where he thinks uh, edward prince edward the black prince his son might be dead he's like whoa you know sackcloth and ashes he and his wife are losing it so there's just a lot of inconsistent characterization as well in addition to the weird plotting but there are some scenes in here that are a little bit strange and and kind of a discontinuity with the rest of it which is this bizarre segue where edward is trying to woo the countess of salisbury what's going on with that and you know, what can we kind of discern from the play? Like, how are we meant to read that whole well, section? Well, Will, do you, before we get into this, do you want to give a little bit of background about the authorship controversy? Because I think that's di directly relevant to these scenes. You know, yeah, actually, that's, that's, a, that's a really good point. So, you should know, first when James suggested that we were going to read Edward III, I was like, is that a Shakespeare play? I've never even heard of that. You know, it's not in my, uh, you know, hardbound copy of The Complete Plays of William Shakespeare. I, I had the same reaction, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I think um, what's interesting is for a long time, this play kind of existed, and when it was printed, you know, in the 1590s, there was no printer listed on the cover sheet, which is usually where authorship information would be listed. Now, other Shakespeare plays didn't have that cover sheet either, like Richard III, but everybody pretty much acknowledges Shakespeare wrote that one. This one, there's been a long debate for like 200, 250 years about whether he wrote it or not. There are some scholars that basically said we can't rule it out, even E.K. Chambers, who is a pretty cautious Shakespeare scholar in the early 20th century, more or less said that. But then there are other people who say, absolutely not. Like Harold Bloom in Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human, sees this play as so bad and so mediocre that it could not possibly have flowed forth from Shakespeare's pen. James is rolling his eyes prolifically uh, in, this, in this moment. I so see nothing of the genius of Richard III in this play. <laughs> so so we, where this gets interesting is in the... 1980s and 1990s, without in early 2000s, without belaboring the point, the critical scholarship turns a bit as people start analyzing some of the language, and that particularly becomes true, you know, in the in the early 2000s where computers are used to analyze the specific use of phrases and how they recur in Shakespeare's works vis-a-vis -vis other playwrights working at the time, your Christopher Marlowe's and like George Nash. And more or less through that analysis and through analyzing the rhyming choices, 
people have reasonably concluded at this stage that Shakespeare did, in fact, at, re- at least write some of this in collaboration with others, most likely. And the scenes that a lot of people think that he wrote are the scenes with Edward III trying to woo the Countess of Salisbury, which read like they're almost from a different play. So yeah, what, what I, so, do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly the, the way I was going to describe it. So the play starts with Edward getting this news about, or not news, but basically being presented for the audience's benefit, more or less, like this information about his descent from Philip the Fair of France and how there's an argument that that makes him the legitimate, you know, the person who should be sitting on the throne of France. And then there's this immediate distraction of this Scots invasion. He has to go north and, like, meet the Countess. So it all feels like up into the scene at Roxborough, at the castle, it feels like it's in continuity and then it's like he has to go defeat the Scots and he's going to go to France. And then the Scots run away. Edward and the Countess start talking. And Edward goes into this sudden, like, spiral of, oh, my God, the Countess is so beautiful and virtuous. And, you know, I must be with her. And it doesn't take, you know, maybe 100 or 150 lines into it. I was like, what, what am I reading? What, what happened? Like, how did we get here? Because it, it goes from the Scots run away. He's like, has this conversation with, with the Countess to all of a sudden he's like hiring some guy to write him lines with which to woo her. So, it, and it feels much more like a scene from... Two Gentlemen of Verona, for instance, right? It reads like Thurio getting the minstrels to play to Sylvia from beneath her her window. With the similar dynamic of the Countess basically being like, I'm not interested in you and I'm never going to be interested in you. So it doesn't fit into the play at all, I, I would say. What is interesting about it to me in terms of thinking about it in the context of the authorship question is one, it does fit in a little bit with the tone of those early Shakespeare comedies. And two... You can sort of see where, like, Shakespeare coming off the success of the Henry VI plays and Richard III might be viewed as a logical person to get involved in revising a history play. So, based on your Hollywood experience, you would call Shakespeare a script doctor in this instance, perhaps? Yes, absolutely. And so, let's also take a step back and think about where Shakespeare is in his career, right? So, like, the play is, I believe, 1596 is when the, is when the play is published. Mm-hmm. And uh, at this, so at this point, if we go with the f- around 1589 timing of Two Gentlemen of Verona, the first play, that means he's basically been active for, say, five to seven years by the time it's published, which is, of course, whatever revisions he's doing, he's doing before 1596 mm-hmm. or before whenever the play is published. So... He's established himself as a writer. He's had some success, right? We know that the Henry VI plays were widely seen, even if we don't think of them as being his most successful plays, mm-hmm. taken from, like, the long view backward. So in a Hollywood context, it's like, you know, he's like a hip young writer who's now, like, done a couple successful things, maybe hasn't had his huge breakout yet, and he's now being sought out to help with other people's material. And, you know, she's, she's still a pretty young guy, and presumably still has trouble putting food on the table and needs a payday. So he's like Lawrence Kasdan, like punching up the script for maybe Empire Strikes Back, except working yeah. with a lot worse yeah. material. Or, I mean, I think uh, in this context, actually, a movie we've talked about before, right? Tom Stoppard got hired mm-hmm. to... Now, I think Tom Stoppard's involvement in Shakespeare in Love ran deeper than just rewriting the script, but Tom Stoppard did not come up with the idea of Shakespeare in Love. He was brought in. I think he rewrote the entire script, which is not 
what seems to be the case with this play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that point in his career, Tom Stoppard was bigger than Shakespeare presumably was, you know, in the relative context. Yeah, yeah, of course, of um, course. But this is, you know, this is a normal thing in Hollywood, and we do also know that collaboration was a frequent aspect of Renaissance playwriting, right? Yeah. Well, this is an interesting thing, right? Because I think we are so inured to the idea of the individual genius, which I would still say, you know, is is a worthwhile concept and like is true in some sense. But the particularly with like playwriting and with film, there's a certain collaborative aspect to this that I think we often shunt aside in favor of just saying, well, it's the visionary presence yeah. of the, the single director or single there's, playwright. There's some part of us that desperately wants it to be one person. And, and of course, like that is true to a greater or lesser degree, depending on what the project is. But there, there's a need to believe that there's like the single genius who is the origin of, of everything and from whom everything proceeds. And like even in cases where that's kind of the case, I mean, for instance... You know, like, I love Lawrence of Arabia. Would Lawrence of Arabia be the same movie without Peter O'Toole as Lawrence? Or maybe an even better, in this context, example, like, would Lawrence of Arabia be the same movie without that famous Maurice Jarre score? You know, it's certainly possible that you could remove or replace one block in the Jenga structure and things would be fine. But... Once you start undermining multiple things, Mm. you do get to a point where you have a different... Yeah. Well, and I think in these capital-intensive projects where you're paying a lot of people and a lot of people are involved and you're hiring expertise, I mean, thinking back to the Oscars, right, and the Emmys and the grant, you know, there's always like a whole horde of people that are involved in the creation of any artistic product. I mean, even like novelists with their editors, there's a sort of interplay and it's very rare that it's like the singular image that we have of like Michelangelo or... um, I don't know, Van Gogh or something, like, laboring in solitude. I mean, even that's not even really true. I mean, I think with the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo had a team that worked with him, and he did the most important bits and had the vision. But it's not executable unless you think about the wider picture. And yet, I think we also would acknowledge with some of this stuff, there's a reason why we remember Shakespeare and why people at the time even recognized Shakespeare as somebody of a different caliber. Yeah, I mean, I think even looking at this play, like if we go with what seems to be the narrative or the idea that Shakespeare basically rewrote primarily that Countess scene and I think maybe one other scene, Mm -hmm. right? And most of it belongs to Thomas Kidd or some other luminary of that period. The contrast between this history play and the history plays of Shakespeare that are acknowledged to be Shakespeare's and not viewed as these mishmash or collaborations. Mm-hmm. The difference is obvious, I think. You know, this play was a very fast read, and a big part of the reason that it was a fast read was because it's just events. It's just stuff happening. So there's it's just no, description of events, basically. Yeah, like yeah. there's no real psychological through line. And you can almost see an attempt with that Countess stuff, right, where, like, he gets rejected by the Countess and then has to... You know, and then basically recommits himself to virtue and to seeking his conquest in France in one of the, by the way, one of the most rapid about faces in literature. But it's it's not directly connected in a believable way. Yeah. Whereas while some of the earlier history plays are kind of episodic, mm-hmm. they feel more cohesive and at least in a thematic way. Yeah. I mean, there's Richard III, which I think pretty clearly a, a, a unified piece in terms of being the first psychological portrait of a person in, in the canon, right? But even before that, Henry VI Part Two, between the infighting in court, the like impotence of Humphrey, and the 
mobocracy of the Jack Cade people, right? There's a central thematic argument about ruling. Or, the center you know, not holding and yeah, kind of you know, falling apart. It all, and so it all fits together in a thematic sense, even if it's episodic in a narrative sense. Yeah. I mean, also stuff happens in those plays on stage. People conspire. People are killed. There's like combat. There's conspiracy. There's actually a lot more plot machinations, but it's also shown to you, and there's some surprises that are in store through that. This is pretty plotting uh, yeah. in the most like dull kind of way. To go back, though, to the Countess scene real quick, one thing I think is interesting and why it almost feels like it's a different play is... There's a, and has this almost romantic comedy quality, even though it's like quite odious in its actual content. Edward has this secretary, Lodwick, who he basically is dictating to, to turn his inchoate thoughts into wooing the Countess. And so you have this playfulness that I think is totally absent from the rest of the play and does feel like a little bit more of Shakespeare's thumbprint on it. Um, yeah, it has that vibe of, you know, of Lucentio talking with. Uh, who's Lucentio's servant? Uh, Is it Tranio? Yeah, Tranio. <laughs> uh, but Will also, in, in terms of the Countess scene and the authorship, and this sort of triggered another question for me, which I don't know if this is one of the things you want to talk about, but we can. if it's not, we can do a quick segue. Yeah. On the one hand, I buy that that particular scene is more likely to be the Shakespeare part mm. because it does feel to me like it as we were saying, like it harkens back to some of these other earlier plays that he did and, and, that, and that's playfulness of the romantic mm. uh, scenes. I also am not sure if, and I think this goes to my dislike of this play more generally, right? Is like, I'm not sure how much of my not liking this play came from the fact that I came to it with skepticism because I knew a little bit about this mm-hmm. authorship stuff. And if part of the reason that I'm seeing more good in those Countess scenes is because I know that that's the stuff that's, that Shakespeare supposedly rewrote. Do you understand yeah, what I'm Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally get you. I guess one of the interesting things here, too, is in this kind of world, particularly Hollywood, script rewrites, that kind of thing, have you, can you think of, like, a movie or a script where something gets rewritten and it's just radically discordant with the rest of the work that's been produced into a film? Because I think that's one of the risks you run when you're doing this writing by committee, particularly for, like, commercial work, is that because there's less of maybe an artistic through line through it, and you're just sort of, like, saying, okay, like, well, give us this, give us that, you know, you may run into different visions, different clashes. I was wondering, have you ever ever seen anything like that? I think you see it more with directors, right, Mm -hmm. where one director gets fired off a show, and then gets someone else gets brought in to finish it, or... Or a director finishes something, and then the studio decides they they want certain stuff reshot, mm-hmm. and they hire someone else to do that stuff. That said, I'm struggling to think of a of an obvious example. Uh, well, I know like there I were, know, yeah. So, like famously, Gone with the Wind had multiple directors. I mm-hmm. think I think Selznick fired three directors over the course of that project. Casablanca also was written by committee. So, like, those are two of the most celebrated movies ever, right? right. So that's you know one thing. Although I will also say, in that context, I, I think that just goes to prove what we were talking about before about this thing about authorship and like the desire for the auteur doesn't really necessarily match up with the reality of things, right? Like Gone with the Wind isn't a, you know, a Howard Hawks picture, and it would never have been, right? That's a David O. Selznick picture, right? The producer as the genius yeah, like, who brings talent together, yeah, and like, like, like them. David O. Selznick may not be the guy who is telling the DP what shots to set up. 
but he's definitely the author of that picture in the like the grander sense of who is the uni- whose unifying vision is driving this forward. Right. And Casablanca is you know the, I think the highest example of the studio as auteur, which is like a very big thing in the, in early Hollywood and like twenties to maybe forties Hollywood of the studios had a formula. They had like their stable of stars and like. Of course, yes, there are great directors. I mean, William Wyler is one of the greatest directors of all time. Mm. I mean, of all time in, like, the 150-year history of cinema, but whatever. And, yes, definitely that existed. But there was this whole underlying system of the way that Hollywood movies were made, of, like, team of writers, and you threw a director onto it, and there was one person overseeing it, and... That was the studio system as the auteur. Right, and well, and when you say pieces. when you say auteur, you're referring to the auteur theory of film, where there's one driving genius, usually the I'm, director. I, yeah, well, I'm appropriating that idea, which is very director focused, to argue that like the auteur can mean almost anything. The auteur can be the screenwriter. The like Charlie Kaufman is the the unifying vision of adaptation, right? Even though Spike Jones directed right. that movie. Right. So that's more what I'm getting at, right? Is like, yes, at the end of the day, there is... And, and I would say, actually, that with Edward III, I don't think Shakespeare is that. No. I, I certainly, you know, I can buy, like, the, those countess scenes do feel like they, are, they have more of that Shakespearean approach and, mm-hmm. you know, and style. But the, the overall arc and the concerns of the play, I mean... I would say one of the reasons that I don't view, that I, I found it hard to view Shakespeare as being the sort of underlying wellspring of what this play is, is that this play doesn't have any of the complexity or concerns. There's none of the genius! <laughs> no, I, I, I don't want to go that far, but it's, it's, it doesn't feel like it matches up with the, the dramatic and psychological interests that we've seen yeah, in this, um It does not have the... Uh, cynicism about politics and the descriptive critique that Shakespeare is making in any of the other plays that we've read that are the histories. Yeah. It doesn't have the penetrating psychological insight of Richard III, and it generally lacks the lighthearted touch that he has in some of even his darkest material where he's writing comedic yeah. lines. So that balance is completely absent. Part of me wonders if coming off the success of the Henry VI plays and thinking probably about doing the earlier stages of the Hundred Years' War and uh, and so on and so forth, that Shakespeare is taking a stab or was sort of brought in on this project to sort of do the history play prequel to all yeah. of this, right? To conclude what he'll eventually finish with Henry the uh, Henry the Fourth parts one and two and uh, Henry the Fifth most notably, which are the later stage of the Hundred Years' War, and this just feels like it's almost the prologue to something more interesting but it fails to grab you and fails to have like much value or interest as something that you'd actually yeah i mean it feels it feels like you know it feels like a studio doing a movie about (laughs) in in a in a very different genre right but like it feels like you have alien and then you have this like sort of string of sequels to alien which personally i don't think are as good but None. Other people love those those other later Alien films, or just Aliens, I think, um, by uh, James right. Cameron. But yeah, and then, <laughs> and then the studio is like, "What if we go back? Where did the ship come from?" It's that same kind of idea, right? It's like, "Oh, we have this thing that people are interested in and makes money. Let's find out what happens when we tell a story about 
what came before that thing and connect it right right it, it has that sort of franchising yeah yeah no, it, it definitely it definitely does have that quality the other thing it reminds me of is sort of with the marvel movies to some degree or you know less so the dc movies it's like when every movie becomes a prolonged trailer to like the big blowout ensemble movie that they want to do to like hinge the universe on and so you get a string of frankly mediocrities to like really bad movies that are supposed to be the origin stories of these characters you don't really care about yeah. or are sort of underdrawn just so they can have their 10 minutes on the screen in the big blowout battle of cgi you can tell i'm not really a fan of uh, superhero movies on that note though james where do we rank this one in the overall arc so uh, this a little bit goes back to the question like literally we were just having this conversation and i, and I was starting to be like well, are we being too generous to the early shakespeare plays that are now five six plays ago for us mm. because I, I will say this like this play is very flat it doesn't give us really any psychological or narrative complexity it doesn't doesn't really ask any interesting questions maybe is is the the best way to put it yeah that said so I would say definitely, you know, if we were to go through the history plays, I, in fact, I would, I would probably say this is not as good as any of the history plays we've read up heretofore, right? I, I don't think Richard III the, the, and the three Henry VI plays are all, even Henry VI Part One, which is, you know, not that great, mm. is more complex and interesting and rich than this play. That said, like, am I really going to say that this play is worse than The Two Gentlemen of Verona? Well... Uh, I'm not sure. On the other hand, there is no set of dialogue in this play that is as good as, for instance, the, the famous What Light is Light monologue Speech, yeah. in Two Gentlemen of Verona, right? And there is no character in this play who's as alive as Sylvia or Lance. So, on the other hand, this is an easier read than... And there's nothing in this play that's like... Uh, well, well, actually, let me take that back. I mean, there there is some objectionable stuff in this play, particularly in the the questionable parenting choices that we've discussed. And, you know, and, and a lot of the stuff in the proceeding of the, the wooing of the Countess. Such as the Countess's father basically trying to convince the Countess to commit adultery with the King of England. It's one of the weirder things I've seen on the page. Gross. Um, <laughs> but, well, I mean, but actually that's an interesting test case, right? Because I think that that sort of thing actually was a characteristic of these kinds of dynastic politics, right? Of... Mm -hmm proximity to the king is everything and so there is a little bit of a moral hazard right for yes. people who like if they want to be close to power and this is the cost like some people did that for sure but it's not presented or treated in this play in an interesting way no it's not connected there are no stakes right, right? Yeah, like it doesn't like, the reason part of these scenes why they don't really matter and why i think this play actually probably belongs at the absolute bottom of the barrel is you never get a sense that any of these scenes really matter all that much in the course of about what's about to happen. Even the Countess scene, I could write a version of this where the king basically has to overcome his lust for the Countess because he needs the Count of Salisbury on his side to like win the coming war. And he gets into a little bit of a like, I don't know, David and Bathsheba sort of situation where, you know, he could potentially kill off Salisbury by sending him to the front or something into a suicidal situation. But that is not what we're looking at. 
Like, there are no stakes for the nation. There aren't even particularly high moral stakes because of the quick turnaround. Uh, so to me, I, I actually think, like, though the two gentlemen of Verona and the Taming of the Shrew are a lot more maybe morally execrable as some of the underlying dynamics yeah, that they right. show. But this one is, like, it's it commits the greatest sin of writing, which is that it is incredibly boring, and it has a lot of other problematic stuff, but I'm not really judging it on that. What I'm judging this one on is we spent more time and had a more interesting conversation about all of the extrinsic stuff to the authorship question and like Hollywood and Shakespeare than what actually happens in the play and the characterizations therein, which says to me, this thing does not really stand on its own. And if you did not have Shakespeare as like a potential collaborator and contributor, we would not really be reading Yeah, the interest in it is only that it's, you know, that Shakespeare may have written it or contributed to it. Yeah, it's only right? because it's part of the apocrypha that we even now, care. I would say that that's true about Two Gentlemen of Verona as well, right? I mean, I think the I think the real interest of Two Gentlemen of Verona, for instance, is that it's the first play and it's where did this guy come from? That said, Two Gentlemen of Verona is a complete story. Right? Yes, it, it may not make sense. It, but it, it doesn't always story. make sense. Stuff doesn't connect well. But it tells the same story from beginning to end, mm-hmm. right? And... Taming the Shrew is the same, yeah. right? Whereas this play, the the Countess stuff feels like, as we've said, it feels like it's in a different story than the rest of it. And the bulk of it is just a series of stuff happening without an actual And being described, arc. being described to you, not, um, not actually shown yeah, in any exactly. tangible way. So I think, all of which is to say, I think... Ultimately, I'm going to agree with you and say that this is the, the last ranking play that we've read so far. I don't have super visceral feelings about this one because it just feels kind of like throwaway flat. and just feels flat. I have more visceral feelings about Two Gentlemen and Taming of the Shrew for some of like the content in it that just kind of feels a little bit nasty. This is just like impossibly dull, not very well written, not interesting in any way. And I think, you know, I think you're right. I mean, there is, for as bad as those plays are, and as objectionable as they are, there is interesting stuff in yes. them. And there's stuff that is worthy of being talked about. Yeah, and we talked, you know, and we had we had good conversations about those. Not saying we didn't have a good conversation about this one, but it's a completely different yeah, kind exactly. of timber. Um, Will, before we uh, wrap up quickly, I realized, first of all, MVP of this play... Oof. I mean, I think it's easily the Countess. Yes, I think the Countess personally. has uh, at least presents some conflict for the overall yeah. for the overall play. And uh, for the record, um, for those keeping score at home, I realized we left Richard III without anointing an MVP of that play. Uh, Richard? I mean, it, it she feels pretty easy, but I just wanted to just, just wanted to. to Set the record straight. Just to just to lay it out there, yeah. you know, he's he's perhaps the first of the king plays that we've read where the king actually deserves to be at the center of the story. Yeah. So James, what are you reading or watching right now? Uh, I am actually in the midst of American Carnage, a book that you recommended to me, Will, uh, which is about basically about the the battle within the Republican Party between the early George W. Bush years and Donald Trump, and sort of how. The GOP fractured and ultimately was taken over by this more extreme wing, which has been very interesting, very well reported, and you know also very relevant to what's happening right now as we speak. A tale of sound and fury. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's our show. 
Next time, we will have our first return to comedy since The Taming of the Shrew with The Comedy of Errors. And I'll be interested to see if Shakespeare has improved his comedic chops. Thanks for tuning into Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with your friends and give us a always glowing five-star review. You can follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.